This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast of the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. In this episode from Land's End to John O'Groats, I've been speaking to people who know what is happening on the ground. I spoke to two former colleagues from the Western Morning News about what is happening in the West Country, including Land's End, in particular the seat of St Ives, which is being hotly contested. Plus, we go right to the other end of the country to John O'Groats and Scotland, and I'll speak to Kieran Andrews, the Scottish political editor of The Times. All of that's coming up in a sec. But first, unprecedented for the chief rabbi to essentially intervene in the election like this. Yes, it is. I am determined that our society will be safe for people of all faiths. So, no apology. Chancellor, Islamophobic incidents rose after Boris Johnson made those remarks. All politicians will choose their own words. Tories projected a 359 seats, Labour 211, Lib Dems 13. The Queen would have to invite someone to form a government, and if Boris Johnson is not in Parliament... Matt Chorley would definitely... It's Friday, so of course I'm joined by Red Box reporter Esther Webber. We're on the on the newsroom floor of the Times to create a sense of hubbub. That's the right uh, word. Right, let's talk about this week. It's difficult to know where to start, really. Tory party manifesto launch seems like a long time ago, and their wish that everyone would stop talking about it immediately seems to have paid off. Partly because Labour have really had a bit of a terrible week. It won't completely distract people from the fact that the Tories did make some huge spending promises in their manifesto and also some staffing promises which is a new weird way they've found to overpromise um, in terms of the recruitment levels for the NHS which no one really seems to understand because they promised 50,000 extra nurses and now they've more or less conceded that that actually includes 19,000 existing nurses. Uh, so we moved on from possibly fudging figures to fudging staffing. If they just said there were going to be 30,000 more nurses, that's enough, it isn't wouldn't it? wouldn't have been a big No, deal. and instead, it, now this idea has taken hold that it, the nurses don't exist or it's yeah. to stop. They're, they're including some nurses who would have left who they're going to stop leaving. But yeah, you're right. Uh, the main thrust of this week has been that Labour have had a pretty terrible week. The chief rabbi wrote the article in The Times saying that Jeremy Corbyn was unfit for office, which was ironically perfectly timed to land just as Jeremy Corbyn did his interview with Andrew Neil. Yeah, that that kind of set the territory really for quite a shocker of an interview 
with Andrew Neil and watched by 3 million, which apparently is more people than watched The X Factor this week. <laughs> <laughs> that might say more about who's bothering to watch The Celebrity X Factor this year Possibly, rather than the, yeah. the state of British politics. <laughs> Yeah, and they will have seen Jeremy Corbyn refuse to apologise to British Jews. Uh, his lieutenants have been out this week saying well, he's already apologised lots of times. <laughs> so why why can Why they... not just do it? And this is yeah. the thing I genuinely don't understand. And I've been very critical of Jeremy Corbyn's record anti-Semitism. The question that none of his supporters can answer is... Why doesn't he just say sorry? What does he think is the downside? Given that every time he doesn't apologise, people go, oh, it's because you're an anti-Semite. Surely the downside of apologising again is not as bad as being accused of being a racist. Yeah, I would agree. And I think it's led a lot of people to, to conclude that maybe he didn't apologise because he's not sorry. Yeah, exactly um, right. Exactly right. Yeah. There was also the very weird bit in the interview with Andrew Neil when he said he didn't want anyone to go through what anyone has been through, <laughs> uh, which is uh, a fascinating insight. Clarifying <laughs> And then to try and sort of bury the Andrew Neil disaster, we had an extraordinary press conference from Jeremy Corbyn on Wednesday when he was waving around some secret documents Documents. Yes, that looked very exciting. It was all kind of redacted out and looked kind of sensational. And the Labour Party branded it breaking news and got everyone quite riled up. It seems like there's a bit more to it, obviously, than Labour is saying. It it doesn't it doesn't mean in their parlance that the NHS is up for sale. Um, and in a way, it's. A shame that that is kind of the way the debate is being framed because there is some stuff that's really interesting in the documents that have been produced about possible uh, price competition with the US and, uh, for example, climate change being excluded from the talks. But in a way, by going off at the deep end <laughs> on the kind of like Donald Trump is going to be running a hospital <laughs> that that has kind of obscured some of the exactly the exactly right there is a there's a real there's a if and when we get to the first bit of brexit and we get onto the future relationship there is going to be a big conversation about the trade-offs of what is and isn't on the table in those talks and in order for us to have the good bits we might have to have some bad which is essentially when we were in the eu that was the deal we signed up to freedom of movement because we got some other benefits. But you're totally right. Instead, the Labour Party is trying to create the impression that basically Donald Trump and Boris Johnson want to shut down the NHS, which I'm not sure is necessarily one that the fact checkers would sign off. Yeah, and I think even Boris Johnson would recognise it's not going to keep him in office. Well, that's the bit that I don't understand. Yeah. Is They say that we're going to start with a deal which is going to double the drugs bill for the NHS yeah. and lead to uh, privatisation and everyone having to pay for healthcare like they do in America. On what planet would any politician, British politician, do that? I'm, I'm not totally sure. <laughs> we should probably talk about Joe Swinson and the, the, the big takeaway, of course, on the uh, YouGov MRP poll, which we talked about in the special episode with Chris Curtis, the last episode. All the folks on Labour and the Tories... The Brexit party down to 3%, basically disappearing almost um, as quickly as they rose. Yeah, and that is will be really disappointing for the Lib Dems and the Brexit party, who did so well in the European election. I think what's interesting about the MRP poll coming two weeks before the campaign is this all gives an opportunity for both sides, to all sides, to move into a different phase, try something different. Um, because they've seen that, um, if not, 
than possibly the writings on the wall. Yeah. Is this the point where the campaign becomes fixed or is there something that they can do to try and change that? The Lib Dems talk about essentially rebooting their campaign. They're no longer talking about Joe Smith becoming Prime Minister. They're talking about how the Lib Dems are the only ones who can stop Boris Johnson getting a majority. Labour seem to be rebooting by targeting leave areas in the north. Almost surprised that that's what the Tories have been going after. If only, only somebody had told them this before. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how the Brexit party can reboot at this stage. But <laughs> no, maybe maybe they have another one of their impromptu rallies it, in the pub. Um, interestingly, the IFS Institute of Fiscal Studies, an independent uh, think tank, has been casting a rule over the finances of the various promises that different campaigns have made uh, on Thursday. Uh, they, for me, they just sum up the uh, entire campaign. Uh, they said, while well, the Tories continue to pretend that tax rises will never be needed to secure decent public services, Labour pretends that huge increases in spending could be financed by just big companies and the rich. So that's essentially it. No one's being yeah. particularly uh, honest. Labour is going to go in search of something that can try and uh, reboot the campaign. Of course, the big excitement next week is that Donald Trump arrives in town. Yeah, that's just what we need, isn't it? To calm <laughs> things down. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how it out. Esther Weber, thanks very much. So in this episode, we're going to talk the far southwest and Scotland. After the break, we'll be talking to Kieran Andrews, the Scottish political editor of The Times. But first, I sat down with my former colleagues from when I worked on the Western Morning News in the run-up to 2010 election campaign. Uh, Philip Bowen, the print editor of the Western World News and senior writer Keith Roster. Let's talk about them about what's happening in the West Country. I covered the general election in 2010 when the Tories were down in the patch the whole time trying to make big gains against the Lib Dems, which they sort of did, but not quite. Then they finished the job in 2015 when they cleared up the whole region, turned blue, bar one seat in Plymouth. To, uh, well, there's one seat in Plymouth, which went to Labour in 2017. And of course, Exeter... Ben Bradshaw, who's also Labour. So that's that's a picture at the moment. Two counties entirely blue, bar two spots of red. What's going to happen, Phil? That's a very good question, Matt. I mean, the Lib Dems obviously think that the West Country is a uh, a winnable part of the country for them, but uh, I think they have made a bit of a tactical error with their position on Brexit because the West Country voted not by a huge majority, but but by a, a enough to uh, to leave the EU, which has made, I think, uh, candidates who are standing for, for the Lib Dems a little bit nervous. Is part of the problem that every time the Lib Dems get overexcited in those seats in London and the South East, which they think they can get by winging over Remainers, they get a bit of traction, a bit of national coverage. There's a chance that they're leaking voters yeah. back out in their, their old heartland. I think they are, because, I mean, if you, as you said you know we've got in Cornwall completely blue whereas I think even just as far back as 2005 it was it was Lib Dem all the way yeah. so there's clearly a lot of potential and there's a lot of sort of latent Lib Demery down in Cornwall but they're kind of a bit odd you know they're they're a bit uh, without meaning to rude to the Cornish <laughs> they're a bit non-conformist a bit kind of quirky and they don't you know they they they, they and the, and we've had Lib Dem MPs in the past in the Southwest who have kind of matched that. You know, they've been individualistic. People like David Penhaligon going right back. Andrew George. Andrew and St. George Ives. and St Ives. You know, people who are quite individualistic. And and that's what I think people, particularly in Cornwall, have liked. But they're also um, you know, independent-minded and, and quite a lot of farmers and fishermen who would perhaps vote Lib Dem but are also quite keen on leaving the EU, whether wrongly or rightly. And that, I think, is going to be a the biggest challenge for the Dems to take those seats that they need to take if they're going to make the breakthroughs they think they are. But it was always a sort of slightly weird electoral picture in that when we had <clears throat> European Parliament elections, they would win 
uh, UKIP would win. UKIP would sweep the boards. Mm. Yeah, uh, we were well used to UKIP coming first in European Parliament elections before uh, everyone else sort of cottoned on it later ones. And yet the same region would then vote Lib Dem because the Lib Dems didn't used to talk about you. No, much. no, exactly. And I think um, Andrew George, for example, who's in probably one of the most winnable seats for the Lib Dems anywhere in the country, really. I mean, it's just a few hundred. I think he's got to turn over to, to take that seat. You know, he, he is absolutely caught in that in that area of difficulty because he uh, understands that his voters are probably not keen on Joe Swinson's we're going to cancel Article 50. We're going to, you know, we're going to, we're not going to withdraw from the EU. We're basically going to stay in. That's a very hard sell for him. Uh, but you know, he's got a lot of people who would vote for him as an individual, and he's been doing a lot of work, and he's always seen. If you well, go, he's, to, not, he's not given up. No. He lost St. Ives in 2015. He did, and he stayed. He's you know, two, I mean, he's, he's his second. Second, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's, you know, and, and I mean, you go to the Royal Cornwall show every year between then and now. He's there, pressing the flesh. You know, he's very visible and, and high profile, but he. He's just, I think, thinking, you know, what am I going to do about this conundrum? Yeah. Because my party is so much hung its hat on on remaining. Keith, a big barometer, a good barometer of sort of how parties think they're doing is where party leaders are going and that sort of thing. If the Tories were confident about hanging on to the West Country, they probably wouldn't bother coming down here very much. Have you had a lot of visits so far? Not since the election was called. Boris Johnson came down twice in a week. Uh, before we even had a date for the election. And uh, he went down to Truro and talked about hospitals. And, uh, <laughs> he, then, he talks about hospitals or whatever. Yeah. And then I met him uh, four days later in Brixham talking about fish. Um, pretty much the same talk, really. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, but since then, as far as I'm aware, the only ones, the only ones who've, who've, who've offered to talk to me has been Liz Truss yesterday. And, and Gavin Williamson came down to Cornwall yesterday as well. And, and what, what's the sort of reception they get? What's the message that they're bringing? You could write the script yourself, you know. It's, uh, there's absolutely nothing Do they want here. to get Brexit done? How did you guess that? <laughs> Boris Johnson did come down as far as Taunton the other day, which I was quite interested in, because th- that should be a pretty safe seat, shouldn't it? It's got a decent majority. I mean, if, if, if he's going to Taunton, it's not as in the bag as, as perhaps it might have done, Phil. No, no, indeed. And, and, and I, he was given a bit of a difficult time because I think he was planning to go to Glastonbury and a load of what he would call crusties were there to meet him. And so they quickly diverted to a cake shop in Wells where apparently he Much said... <laughs> and he also told the baker there that these crusties were crustier than his loaves, being you know, typical Boris kind of uh, humour. But, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's true. I mean, of course, Boris has got some connections with Somerset. He grew up on Exmoor and so perhaps he was just popping in to see the family as well and <laughs> combining it with a bit of a bit of politicking. Rebecca Powell in Taunton ought to be pretty safe and uh, if he thinks she needs a bit of help then that, that may signal that you know they're not quite as confident as, as they appear. And what impact is the Brexit party pulling out had? Because presumably in all given that almost all the seats are Tory held, they're obviously not standing. But were they posing much of a threat before? They did very well of course in the European elections. And they're not standing in any of the Cornish seats, but they are standing in some Devon seats. Okay. And uh, um, and Widdicombe is is contesting Plymouth, uh, Sutton, and Devonport, or as the Brexit Party's website calls it, Sutton and Devonport. Excellent. That's always a good way to bring up the locals, spelling the constituency wrong. I spoke to her yesterday, and she is she's convinced she's going to take votes from Labour, not the Tories, but. Well, that'll be interesting to see. 
Uh, what about Labour? Because the entire time I was uh, on the West of Audi News, we wrote stories about how Labour ignored the West Country, didn't know where it was, didn't understand it. Has Jeremy Corbyn, the North Islington metropolitan uh, socialist, has he embraced the West Country in any well, way? He has been down. Oh, has he? Uh, before the election was yeah. called. I wouldn't be at all surprised if Labour doesn't get a couple of seats down this way. Oh, really? Whereabouts? Yeah. Which are the seats uh, we should be looking at? Well, I think you, you might look at Truro and Falmouth. Oh, interesting. They're doing work. Camborne and Redruth, that's George Eustace's seat. Yeah. They're quite strong there. And last time, they didn't. They came second and didn't do too badly. And back in the sort of new Labour days, it was Labour, wasn't yeah. it? And then um, it went Lib Dem and then Tory. Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he, he will have some followers, obviously, I don't think they're going to waste a huge amount of resources trying to win, you know, North Devon or trying to unseat uh, anyone in, in, in any rural West Country seat, really. You know, they're going to concentrate where they need to. And so what is the West Country and the West of Water News looking for in this election? What are the issues that don't get talked about in Westminster by people like me normally? Agriculture is a big thing. I see we've got a piece in the paper tomorrow saying that the Conservatives have promised that they're going to continue to pay farmers the subsidies that they get at the moment for at least the uh, duration of this parliament. Those are the kind of things that will, will resonate. And, and uh, I think some of the Labour Party's rural policies won't play quite so well, which are based around a lot of sort of animal welfare stuff, which is all important, but it perhaps doesn't play to the what, what uh, the priorities of, of some of our farming um, readers and, and, and the voters in that sort of uh, area of interest. But places like Exeter, Ben Bradshaw will romp home, almost no question. Very popular constituency MP, not at all a fan of Corbyn, which probably does him a good <laughs> deal of good uh, in Exeter. And I think probably Luke Pollard will hold on in Plymouth, Sutton and Devonport, um, partly because maybe this the vote will be split by Anne Whittacombe there. So uh, who knows? They could they could take seats in Cornwall. It's very hard to... I mean, as we have all been saying since the very day this election was called, it's very hard to call. <laughs> and, and it's particularly hard to call, you know, in, in some of those, you know, sort of quirky seats where people could be uh, uh, voting in a way which we haven't really thought about. And, and, and they're not really getting a lot of coverage. You know, we're not getting... I don't think many people are doing any polling in Cornwall, for instance, or North Devon. So, you know, it's hard to know quite what those... To get a sense of what's really going on in those yeah. the, uh, the one factor that not many people are taking into account are students, I think. And I've spoken to students here in Plymouth and in Exeter, and they're all registering to vote. Not many of them are saying they'll vote Conservative. So, uh, yes, I think you could see, because that's a factor that the pollsters don't really tap into very readily, and you, we could get a surprise. I watched a rugby league commentary years ago where, very close game, and the commentator, who was it? Eddie Waring, was it? Very excitedly saying, well, it's either going to be Hull Kingston Rovers or it's going to be Leeds. Or it's going to be a draw. <laughs> <laughs> and that's basically where we are. And that's where we are. <laughs> that's basically yeah. where we are. Uh, just finally, because a couple of weeks ago I was in Leeds and we were talking about the North-South divide and obviously there's a lot of love bombing going on in the uh, to win over the North and the Northern powerhouse and HS2 and that, all that sort of stuff. What is it that the South West would like which it isn't getting? Full fibre broadband. It wants improvements to the communications down here, the duelling of bits of the road between London and Cornwall that aren't jeweled and it wants a bit of sort of attention really but I mean we've been asking for these things for like <laughs> 30 years I was going to say definitely 10, 15 years yeah, ago we, yeah. were, we were asking the for same it, yeah. old same old and, and the Western Morning News has been doing a campaign back the southwest with the support of the, the LEPs and, and businesses locally and, and, and we've had some success in fact we had Bill Martin, the editor-in-chief, went up to Downing Street a couple of weeks ago and met Boris and we put a sort of a plan together for what 
kind of investment the region needs, infrastructure investment, all very you know, well received. So you know, there, there is definitely a, a need to, to for some focus here, but you do get the impression from certainly from the Conservatives who kind of think perhaps they've done what they need to to hold on to their seats and maybe from Labour that they, they don't really have a lot to, uh, to to gain so we won't get much attention but we'll keep plugging away. Keep on banging the drum <laughs> for the West Country quite right too. Uh, Phil, Keith, thanks very much. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. So I'm now joined on the line by Kieran Andrews, the Scottish political editor of The Times. Kieran, we've now had the SNP manifesto this week. We've had the first big, you know, we had the big YouGov poll on how individual seats might play out. What's your sense of what is happening in Scotland? Much like a football cliche here, it's almost been a campaign of two halves. We're at the very start of it. It looked like it was going to be disastrous for the Scottish Conservatives. Leaderless under after Ruth Davidson resigned fighting themselves as they all tried to position to replace her. Boris Johnson um, is incredibly unpopular, according to all sorts of polling ratings up here. And the SNP looked like they were just going to roll roll away with things. You know, they were going to uh, sweep back to levels almost like the 2015 landslide. Now, the sensible people in the SNP, the, the folk who, who think about these things properly, quickly tried to put a bit of expectation management on that, which was the you know, the sensible thing to do. And it's now starting to level out. The, the polls for the Tories are getting a bit better. The senior folk in the Scottish Conservatives say they always like to smile when they hit 25% in the polls because it means they are going to hold roughly what they have just now. And most recent Scotland-wide poll for the Sunday Times put them on 28%. So there were, there were a few grins around there. And, uh, you know, as our seat projection is showing, I think we're now getting to the kind of levels you would expect. The Tories will lose a few, but not collapse in Scotland. And the SNP will put on um, a decent few, but not absolutely run away with things. Although we shouldn't overlook the fact that if they do get, as uh, YouGov suggested this week, what, 42, 43 seats, only because of the huge high point of 2015 do we think that anything below that is seen as a massive setback. To actually be at this stage in the electoral cycle, to have been in government for so long in Scotland, and to be now putting seats on compared to 2017 would still be a hell of a sort of political achievement. Yeah, we do seem to lose sight of some perspective in Scottish politics sometimes. (laughs) In that we forget that up until 2015, up until four years ago, the SNP had six MPs. 
and now and now people are talking about well it might be a bit of a disappointment if they only get so sort of low 40s which is which is incredible and ridiculous the idea that like you say a party of government party of government for um 12 years now in Scotland with with domestic issues that are catching up with them particularly around the health service but also in education to still be able to put on votes and to win extra seats. It's a remarkable achievement, and they'll be very happy if they return 43 MPs. What is that down to? How has Nicola Sturgeon managed to pull off this apparent never-ending trick? I think there's a couple of a couple of reasons. One is ultimately the constitution. So in Scotland, particularly in a, a UK general election, if you're a yes voter and independence or the constitution is the most important thing to you, there's only one option for you to vote for, realistically, it's the SNP. Um, that was most evident in 2015 when the unionist vote, as it were, split pretty uh, you know, pretty well between the other three um, main parties that are in contention for seats in the, the Tories' Labour and the Web Dems. The reason the Tories have managed to catch up a bit is because they have re- managed to get uh, the unionist vote to coalesce around them um, to quite a large degree. Um, the other reason why the SNP continue to do so well is because the opposition, are, frankly, have been a bit rubbish over the, <laughs> over the last 10 years. Um, and there, there's no getting away from that. Um, very few people have been able to lay um, a glove on Nicola Sturgeon uh, or indeed Alex Hammond when he was First Minister uh, politically. And in part that's because all the other main parties, if you like, um, if they had rising stars they went to Westminster and what Alex Hammond did and then Nicola Sturgeon you know they became big beasts within the Scottish Parliament and then on the Scottish sort of political scene and so they sort of they've benefited from that we, I suppose we should also talk about the Lib Dems because of course we began the election campaign with Joe Swinson telling us she was going to become Prime Minister and now we're talking about whether or not she hangs on to her seat in East Dunbartonshire yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, Joe, Joe Swinson, frankly, hasn't spent an awful lot of time in our constituency uh, during this election. She was back up there um, this week. She was she was in there on Wednesday, perhaps, uh, realising that there's a there's a fight to be had. Yeah, the, the, the Lib Dems in Scotland, again, their, their vote hasn't quite taken off in the way they would have wanted. You know, they were talking about uh, walking away with... Uh, with North East Fife very comfortable, which is currently held by the SNP Stephen Gethins, and possibly winning Ian Blackford's seat in Rosskye Lochaber. Now, they may well be on course to, to claim North East Fife, but they also look like they're going to lose some seats in this election, which they didn't which they didn't factor into their prep at all. Um, we talked about the SNP's expectation management before the, the Web Dems. Um, modest as it was in Scotland, looks like they could have done with uh, managing their own expectations a bit better. We should talk about, just because it happened this week, uh, John Nicholson's cock-up. <laughs> so to explain, John Nicholson was, well, if he used to be a journalist. He became an SNP MP in 2015, then lost his seat in 2017. Yes, and he lost his seat of Eastern Bartonshire to Joe Swinson in 2017 and moved to stand in what looked like the much safer um, bet of Ockel and South Perthshire for this year's election in a move that raised quite a few eyebrows within his own party. Um, There's a a number of uh, his colleagues who don't think it's sending out entirely the right message. He stood up at a local hustings um, this week and declared that he, the SNP, are the only party who can beat the Tories in eastern Bartonshire. Cue boos from uh, from the, uh, the the assembled crowd in Aloha who aren't quite sure why he is so determined to still be the MP for the seat that he actually still lives in, 
um, despite standing for uh, uh, <laughs> some place the other side of the country. Rule number one of being a, an election <laughs> candidate, remember the seat that you're standing in. Um, yes, so, yes. Um, uh, he obviously can't remember which seat uh, he's supposed to be keeping an eye on. On election night, which are the seats that you're most interested in? The seats I'm most interested in are, um, I actually think North East Fife will be fascinating to see, you know, whether the SNP can hold on there. If they lose, Stephen Gethins will lose one of their biggest assets. But likewise, if the Lib Dems can't win that seat, then it's been a really, really poor election for Joe Swinson. The other one to keep an eye on is, I think it's the country's tightest three-way marginal, and it's Lanark and Hamilton East. It was a Labour stronghold that the SNP won in that 2015 landslide. But now... Uh, the Tories are within a couple of hundred votes of taking it and were second in the last election. And they are they are quietly pretty confident about that. So it's worth it's worth looking at. Again, it could be almost a kind of bellwether for um, how things are going to hold up across the country. And just because we're talking Scottish politics more generally, you mentioned Ruth Davison standing down. Who is likely to replace her? Jackson Carlaw, who is the interim leader at the moment, is definitely the front runner. The Scottish Tories have put any talk about this on very much on ice until after the general election, after, uh, you know, it seemed that every Scottish Conservative member of the Scottish Parliament was uh, peacocking and positioning and putting their hat in the ring a few weeks ago, particularly around the time of the Tory conference. Everyone has rolled back. So we'll see. Jackson Carlow is definitely the favourite. He's done a reasonable job since he's uh, stepped in to fill in for Ruth Davidson while this is ongoing. But there are a couple. um, Liam Kerr, the Justice Spokesman, Miles Briggs, the Health Spokesman, are definitely worth watching as well. Kieran Andrews there, the Scottish political editor of The Times. Uh, that's all we've got time for this week. Email in your questions, redbox at thetimes.co.uk. Sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. And subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any extra episodes that might suddenly appear between now and polling day. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.